Welcome to a special edition of Just Us for Justice called Wise Counsel, brought to you by the Consumer Attorneys of California. I'm Micah Star Liberty, CAOC president, along with my co-host and fellow board member, a fantastic trial lawyer from San Diego, John Gomez. Hi, John. How are you today? I'm awesome. How are you, Micah? I'm fantastic, and I'm really looking forward to this podcast uh, because today we're joined by Mark Lanier, famed Houston trial lawyer. Mr. Lanier is constantly recognized as one, if not the top civil trial attorney in the country. With offices in several states over his 30-year career, he has achieved close to $20 billion in verdicts. Author, attorney, Sunday school teacher, Mark Lanier, thank you so much for joining us. What an honor it is to be on this show with two incredible lawyers in their own right. So Micah and John, thank you for having me. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, so Mark, um, you're a big hero of mine. Um, I must say for all of our listeners, if you get a chance to go to his trial academy in August, I highly recommend it. It was transformative to me as a trial lawyer. And I just look up to you as a human being as well. And so, um, you know, the, the point of these podcasts is to help our listeners get to know America's great trial lawyers kind of personally. And so the first question I would have for you, uh, Mark, was what kind of kid was Mark Lanier growing up? What kinds of things did you enjoy doing? And at what point did you say, look, I want to become a lawyer? So when I was growing up, I, I, I moved in a lot of different places at a very early age. I was born in Dallas, Texas moved to Fort Worth, to New Orleans, Louisiana, Shreveport, Louisiana, Abilene, Texas, Memphis, Tennessee, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, Rochester, New York, Lubbock, Texas, all before I finished middle school. And so um, moving around a lot uh, affects the way you develop. You, you, especially when you move to different parts of the country, you find yourself adopting different speech patterns. Uh, when you're in New York, you talk like someone from New York. When you're in Texas, you talk like someone from Texas. It just affects your brain without you realizing it. It also means you try to learn how to make friends as quickly as you can because you're constantly having to make new friends when you move to a new location. And I think that affected me as an, an individual. Be beyond that, uh, I grew up in a loving home my mom and dad were great. I had an older sister, still do, and a younger sister, still do. And the, uh, uh, the, the, my personality, I, I loved sports, but I also loved school. And, and my uh, favorite thing to do was to argue. Uh, I found it interesting when I graduated from middle school and we went into high school, uh, they had a, a last will and testament where you classmates decided what you were leaving behind. And, and in ninth grade, I was already leaving behind my natural argumentative ability to someone. Uh, I, I knew then that I'd love to talk for a living. And so I wanted to be either a preacher or a lawyer or a politician. And uh, that was my decision uh, early on. And uh, the direction I put in my life, I debated through high school and, and uh, loved high school debate and uh, went into college, prepared to do any of those options and uh, kind of took it from there. Awesome, thank you so much. Mark, you're someone that folks look up to as, as John just said, and someone who uh, people come to for advice about trial strategy, career choices, uh, and, and probably some spiritual guidance on occasion. Um, what's the best advice you ever got? And on the flip side, what's the worst advice you've ever given? Uh -huh. The best advice I ever got. Um, can I divide that up into two, Micah? Of course. You can do whatever you want. You're Mark Lanier. No, 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 no. That just puts boundaries out there. Um, let me first give from, from legal advice. I think the best legal advice I ever got was to be yourself. Um, one of the, the drawbacks of, of this ability to, to morph based upon the ge geography of where I am and who I'm talking to, 
uh, one of the drawbacks is, is, is with my personality, I'm able to, to morph also and become like some trial lawyers that I've greatly admired. And, and I found at one point in my career, it was really hampering me because there was this one lawyer who was amazing, but he was also a very angry person and, a, and a, um, he was mean to be, to be candid about it. And that's just who he was and it worked for him. And I tried being uh, angry and mean. It didn't work for me because it's just not who I am. And someone told me one time, uh, David Lippman in Florida told me one time, he said, Lanier, uh, how many trials did it take until you figured out just be yourself, be who you are? And I could remember counting it because uh, I knew exactly when that happened. And so I think that idea of being authentic, being genuine, being who you are is some of the best counsel I've ever gotten uh, in, in the practice of law and trying cases. In terms of life, uh, for me, the best counsel I've ever gotten is to stay balanced and, and to stay hooked in with my faith by making it part of a daily walk and not something that I pull out of the, the closet periodically to, to put on. And uh, I think that that's transformed who I am and, and my ethics and my work and my um, empathy for others and a number of different things. So I divide it up with those. Now, the worst advice I've ever given, that's a little more difficult, Micah, because I've given some pretty bad advice in my life. Um, uh, I think maybe some of the worst advice I've given is when I've told people, I, I, this is what you need to do. Now, you can fill in the blank after that, because I don't know what people need to do. Heavens, I'm struggling to figure out what I need to do some of the time. And, and uh, um, uh, I certainly am not in a position to do that. So I've tried to temper that over the years. And instead of me saying, here's what you need to do, uh, I, I instead try to say, hopefully, um, here are some ideas you should consider. Or uh, here's, um, here." Here's my thought and the reasons behind my thought, but I could be wrong. Uh, I, I've tried to take this edge off uh, uh, of recognizing that, that I make a lot of mistakes and I don't need to be someone out there giving, you know, the advice as if I'm the know-it-all, because I'm not. So, so Mark, um all that I've seen of you is win after win after win after win and big win after big win after big win. And that's not the life of many of our trial lawyers, you know, listening here today. And so I'd ask, you know, among, along the way, were there any setbacks or places where you weren't confident in yourself or you had bad things happen? And if so, you know, how did you get through those times? Oh, heavens, yes. Um, I don't talk about my losses as much, but I'm, I can tell you loss after loss after loss, too. Maybe the most devastating loss that I had was in February of 1993. And uh, I, I remember the date. Uh, this, this was a huge deal. I represented a widow named B. Randolph. Beatrice Randolph had nine children under the age of 18. Her husband was an offshore oil worker. He was put on a helicopter to be taken offshore. The pilot uh, of the helicopter went into the bathroom before the flight and was throwing up. He got behind the stick anyway and flew the helicopter. And he started to faint while he was uh, um, out in the Gulf of Mexico. The helicopter crashed. The pilot survived, uh, but the four passengers died, including B's husband. Uh, I had that case and uh, uh, the offer right before trial was $2 million. Uh, I had drawn a line in the sand at two and a half million with my client and, and uh, we were gonna stick on that and, and the helicopter company wouldn't come up. So we tried the case. The jury returned a verdict, it was a zero. The jury decided that the helicopter pilot would not have taken his own life in his hands if he didn't feel he was safe to fly. And I had not overcome that obstacle in the jury's mind. The widow said to me in tears, would it be okay if we went ahead and accepted the $2 million now? And I explained to her that money was no longer on the table. Um, 
and as I had already explained to her, I guess, but it didn't register. Um, fortunately, uh, we had a, an amazing judge who cared about justice and saw this as a miscarriage. And he pulled uh, me and the defense attorney back into chambers. And he told us, he said, um, uh, I, under Texas law, have the right to grant a new trial with no reason given. And he looked at the defense lawyer and he said, Ken, you've got to go back and get a million dollars to offer or I'm going to grant a new trial. And then he looked at me and he said, Lanier, you're going to take the million dollars. You're not going to take any expenses out. You're eating them all. You're not going to take any fee out. You're eating it all. The entire million dollars goes to the widow Randolph and her kids. And that's the way it's going to be. And I said, absolutely, Your Honor. Ken said, uh, I'll go get the okay. He came back in five minutes later with the million. And that's almost what she'd have gotten if we'd taken the $2 million in settlement once you take out fees and expenses. So she was, in essence, made whole with that settlement offer. But I realized then that we're dealing with people's lives in a way where it doesn't matter how good we are, how smart we are, um, we, we, we need to be incredibly diligent and also incredibly humble. Anybody who tells you, I have figured out exactly what we need is someone um, who's, who's better than I am. Um, I, I've learned to be very careful about where I draw lines and it, it's, it's, it shook me up. Now it, it happened to be in November of that year, we hit a case for, $483 million. It was my first nine million, nine figure judgment. But I re remember that year more for the loss than I do the win. And uh, Mark, when you have experiences like that um, with B, as a man of faith, is there any scripture that you turn to to try and buoy yourself back up? Because those um, types of defeats for a lot of us are heartbreaking and difficult to overcome. One of our jobs as trial lawyers is to get up the next day and keep fighting. But is there anything that you turn to to remind yourself of what your goals are, your your charge is? Yeah, and it's useful for the listeners to know that, that I uh, uh, care deeply about my faith. I care deeply about scripture. Um, my undergraduate degree is in Hebrew and Greek. So I mean, I translated the Bible basically for college. Um, there are a, a number of passages I go to, but I'll pull out just a couple for you. Uh, one is in Proverbs, the third chapter. Uh, Proverbs is a book of wisdom sayings that's been, that, that were accumulated over the life of, of Israel as a nation and put together. And, and one passage, passage in particular out of Proverbs chapter three that's always meant a lot to me is um, acknowledge the Lord in all of your ways and he will make your paths straight. And I like that because on my own, I tend to meander. On my own, I tend to find rocky ground. On my own, I tend to get sidetracked and lost. But if in everything I do, I will acknowledge that there is one greater than I am, that I, I, in essence, play for him. I'm doing this for him. I'm trying to do what he wants me to do. When I acknowledge him in that way and try to seek his wisdom and guidance, I have the assurance that he's going to make my path straight. Even if it's one where I tend to be wandering, he's going to get me back on the road. And so what my chore is, what my obligation is, as I understand and personalize that passage, it's to try and acknowledge that, that there is a God who cares about justice, who cares about me, who cares about what I'm doing. I'm trying to do it for him. And ultimately, I've got to trust him with the consequences. I just can't control all of those. And so that's a, a passage that, that's meant a lot to me um, uh, out of the Hebrew uh, and Christian Bible, Hebrew Bible, Christian Old Testament. Um, uh, there are lots more. Um, uh, there's a New Testament equivalent to that. Uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, with his followers, uh, he said, um, 
seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added unto it. God will take care of everything. Paul wrote the Romans and said uh, um, to that, that uh, all things work together for good in Romans 8 for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. God's going to work it out to good. James, in the, the epistle of James, James was a brother of Jesus, half-brother. James wrote, count it all joy when you meet various trials. Know that as your faith is being tested, it's going to strengthen who you are. And so what I do is I try to, uh, uh, my, you know, people joke, some people go drown their sorrows in liquor. I tend to go drown my sorrows in scripture. <laughs> and so both of us come out on the other side and hopefully able to work. Um, uh, and that's what I did. Awesome. So Mark, um, you know, you, you have a huge firm, you try these huge cases, you've got, um, your family, you're an author. Uh, I heard, uh, recently that you're a gourmet chef as well. Um, so first I want to ask like, what you like to cook? Like what's your favorite thing to prepare? And why you like to do that. And then I'm going to, and then as a, a follow along, as a tag along, how on earth do you find the time? Like, because we're all dealing with time management. We all feel like we're under the gun, but it seems like you've figured it out pretty well. Well, on food, uh, I must warn you, I can burn broccoli. So there are some things I wouldn't call myself a gourmet chef per se, but I am a decent baker. I like to bake. And so uh, I think I make one of the best bagels you'll ever eat in your life. And, uh, you know, it's a two-day process to make them right. Uh, but I love to bake all sorts of things like fried donuts uh, for the family. That's a, a specialty yeast donuts that, that I'll, I'll make. We do that on Christmas. We do that on, on a few other days of the year as well, birthdays and stuff. Um, uh, I love to make English muffins from scratch. That's fun. I love to make crusty breads and, and uh, um, cranberry uh, uh, walnut breads, one of my favorite kinds to make because it's great. And I'll take loaves to trial each week. I'll make it on the weekend, then I'll take it to trial and I'll eat a little bit each day and it sustains me. Um, so I do love to bake. Uh, time is an issue. Uh, time is, uh, um, <laughs> I've got a, a dear friend who's in his late 80s, early 90s now, uh, who's a, an Egyptologist in Woolton, England. And I was visiting in, him in his home one day. And he said to me, he said, yes, the great enemy. And he kept referencing the great enemy. And I finally said, Who, who's the great enemy? And he said, time. Time is the great enemy. And he's right. Uh, time is something that, that is, is, uh, is an enemy. So what do I do to try to fit everything in I want to do? Um, I, I just try to be as efficient as I can. Um, you know, I return phone calls when I'm driving, if I can. I um, uh, try to schedule things because if I schedule things with some precision, then I can get things done. You got to be real careful with emails. I've got all, all these rules about how to do emails. Otherwise, emails will eat you alive. And so if I follow my rules, I can save time on my emails big time. Uh, um, I've got uh, different things I try to do a little bit of each day. And, and I'm careful about how much time I spend eating. I try to exercise. I try to sleep right so that I, my brain is working at peak efficiency when it's working. It's a huge picture. And uh, I think, in fact, John, this year at the Trial Academy, I'm going to do a module on timing and how to use your time most effectively, because lawyers really need to know some things that, that I've picked up from others and some I've developed myself that really do help with time. And so I'm going to put that time module in for the seminar uh, simply because you've, you've asked about it. Awesome. I'll take credit. I'll, I'll walk around and tell everybody it's because of me. Uh, I'll tell everybody it's because of you. Uh, thank you so much. I would love to hear those rules about email so it doesn't eat up your time. You want to give us maybe the top three? Sure. Um, let's see. Number one, set aside two times a day when you're going to look at emails. 
And I try to do a, a look at emails in the morning. And I try to do a look at emails in the afternoon. It still gives me time to respond. Now, that doesn't mean you don't look more than that. But you set aside two times. And then you've got to have blocks where you know you can avoid emails. Look, we know that we're not going to check emails while we're driving. We know we're not going to check emails while we're on airplanes that don't have internet. Um, it, it, there are times where you can just say, I've got a two hour block where the world will not crater if for two hours I don't look at emails and then you shut it off. Or you say working offline. So that's one. Second, uh, I use for my email program, um, uh, Outlook, Microsoft Outlook. I think a lot of people do. There is an add-on that you can add to your Microsoft Outlook that allows emails to go out at a specific time and date. So a lot of people use email like texting. And if I email you, you can turn around and email me right back and you know I'm on email and we're supposed to carry on this dialogue via email. Well, that doesn't help me if I'm trying to clear out my emails. And so uh, um, what I will do, if it's one of these where I'm afraid someone's gonna email me right back and I don't have time for that, is I'll send the email out at midnight. I'll just set it and say, send this out at midnight or send this out at three in the afternoon or send this out whenever. Having that flexibility is amazing because that also leads to my third rule, which is try to clear your email box out both times each day that you look at it. And people say, how do you clear it out? I've got thousands. You set up folders and you put them in the folders. Well, I don't have time to put thousands in a folder. Fine, make your first folder all of the emails I didn't have time to put into a folder. Put them all in there. And when you wanna go find that email, you know it's gonna be in that folder. But after that, you set up folders and you do that. Now, people say to me, yeah, but I can't clear out my emails because I need to see this one. For example, I had an email about the, the login and, and information and timing of this. And what I did is I sent that email to myself, but I used that time delivery so that it comes in five minutes before we do this. And I'm reminded of everything that's going to happen here or if I've got some stuff I need to do for a hearing and I'm not gonna prepare for the hearing until a week from now. I'll send the email to myself to arrive at the time I've set aside to prepare for the hearing. So you, you, those are three little tricks that, that come to mind immediately. You know, I'll just add, because I use Office 365 too, there is another add-on called Insights that will tell you how much time you're spending on email, how much time you're spending on scheduled phone calls and meetings. And um, it was very insightful when I discovered this. I had no idea how much time emails were eating up of my it's day. It's crazy. I get 350 a day I have to look at. Well, I think that's gonna be an immediate takeaway for anyone that listens. And, and so Mark, um, among the various things you do that I forgot to mention is you teach uh, Sunday school. And so um, I wanted uh, to ask you a little bit about why you do that, you know, why you like it. Um, if if it, you feel like it has some application to you as a trial lawyer. And then I want to know if you're in the middle of one of your big three month trials, um, do you go and teach on Sundays? And so, and, and where can our, you know, I just found your stuff on the internet. I found all the videos. And so I think, and I, I watched one, I started today and they're really good. So it'd be nice, I think, for some listeners to know where to find your stuff. Okay, so let me change those orders up a little bit. Uh, let me first take the, the, the middle part that you indicated, what happens when I'm in trial. At this point in my life, I've tried 13 cases that have gone three months or longer. Um, um, there aren't a lot of lawyers that get into those long trials like that, much less 13 of them. And, and that is a grueling experience because when I try cases, typically I do every witness. Uh, I do all the directs, I do all the crosses, I do all the arguments. And, and so it, it is, uh, it's, it's running a marathon in a sense. Um, but the, in the midst of that, I do try to return home every weekend and touch base with my family and teach my class on Sunday. And so teaching a class on Sunday is something I do in the middle of all of those trials. Now, 
I'll jump back to the first question, and that is what's going on and why, and does it help me as a trial lawyer? Uh, something I don't tell a lot of people in the trial world, um, uh, just doesn't come up. I'm not trying to hide it, but, but I do tell a lot of people in, in the faith part of my life, the faith world that I walk in. Um, I never became a lawyer because of this burning desire to be an incredible trial lawyer. I really wanted to be a preacher. That was my first choice. But I, I didn't like the idea of preaching for money. I didn't like the idea of being a preacher who stands up and says, hey, contribute because I want my salary. And I was talking to one of my preachers about it. And my preacher told me when I was young and I was about to graduate from high school or college because I had an opportunity to go preach at a church or I could go to law school. He said, Lanier, go to law school. And he said, and then just teach class each Sunday. He said, then you're always doing it because you want to. You're never doing it because you have to, to make a living. You don't have to charge for it. And you can do it for free because you make your living somewhere else. So I became a lawyer simply to pay the bills so that I could teach for free. And, and so for me, teaching and preaching is really my passion and my drive. I just practice law because um, I, I happen to find a good way to use my skills to pay the bills. Now, it turns out uh, this law stuff works pretty good for me. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's turned, it turned out to be an okay gig. And, uh, and actually, I enjoy it. And I, and I have become passionate about it. And I've seen that that a lot of good, you know, Micah, one of your favorite verses you told me once in an email was Micah 6, 8. Micah 6, 8 says, what does the Lord require of you? Micah is an Old Testament prophet who's, who's writing to a nation where the rich people are running the world. They're running the nation and the poor people and the widows and the orphans are getting trampled. They don't get justice in courts. They don't get treated right. They're it's it's a, a I'm going to walk all over you to get what I want type environment culturally, and Micah the prophet is called by God to go denounce this, and so in Micah the sixth chapter the eighth verse Micah asks this question: What does the Lord require of you? Require of you, and then he answers it: To do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. Those three things. And doing justice is the first one. And that we get to do that uh, as an occupation is a profound thing for me from a, a faith perspective. So I've grown into a love and a passion and a, and a gratitude that God has placed me in a career where I can pursue justice on his behalf but, uh, uh, and, and in this world. Um, but it, it wasn't my original love. So uh, I go back and, and I teach every Sunday and it keeps me well grounded and it, and it informs my life and it impassions my life and it emboldens my life. And, and it, does it help in other ways? Well, yeah, I mean, as a practical matter, every 45 minute lesson I give is an opening statement or a closing argument. I use my, my uh, overhead IPVO or ELMO. I use a PowerPoint. Uh, um, I, I use, you know, a, a lecture format. So it's, it's all a dynamic that's wrapped up together. And I've been doing that for my life. And so people can download uh, either podcasts or the videos or the written lessons many times um, uh, from our website, which is www.biblical dash by that I mean a hyphen dash literacy.org but they're also all over YouTube and everywhere else. Wonderful I'm sure some of our listeners will check that out. Um, so Mark your daughter joined your firm in 2016 will you tell us a little bit about what it's like to work with your daughter and also let us know what did you do to ensure that she was treated just like every other associate when she joined the Lanier firm? Well, Rachel is just an amazing young lady. She has been her whole life. She walked in the same path Becky, my wife and I did in terms of high school debate. 
She uh, took Greek in, in college, who could ask for anything more. Uh, uh, she's, she's went to law school. The first thing that I did is I told her she couldn't come work for us immediately. It would not be fair where she comes and she's the boss's daughter. Uh, I didn't think it would be best for her. So she took a job at a plans firm, Bellican Fox in New York City. They're a marvelous firm. They do great work, good trial lawyers, uh, like a good solid practice. And they didn't treat her any differently than they'd have treated any other young lawyer who came in. And so for two and a half years, she cut her teeth uh, having to be the young lawyer that's, that's just trying to make her way by making everybody else happy and doing a good solid job. And she did, she did great. She got a lot of really good experience. She made a lot of really good friends. She was around some marvelous trial lawyers to learn some marvelous uh, tools. And then I had a case that was gonna go to trial that involved a bunch of plaintiffs from New York. I'm licensed in New York, but Rachel was as well, and that's where she worked, and it was going to be a lot of hands-on work right there with these plaintiffs in New York City. So I went to her and I said, you know, you had talked before about maybe coming work for, for the firm after three to five years, um, uh, which was actually my suggestion to her, um, but it's only been two and a half, but I need you now. Uh, what do you think? And she said, well, let me talk to my bosses because I don't want to leave them in the lurch. Uh, they were great about it. And uh, so she came to work for me and, and I just put her to work. And, and I told her, you know, there are times where I've got to be your boss. There are other times where I'm your dad and, uh, uh, and, and we'll just have to be real good about keeping those, those lines of communication open to make sure, you know, sometimes when I ask you to do something as your boss, you don't get to say, I don't want to do it. I'm asking you something as your dad, you can whine and moan all you want I'm your dad. And I don't want to lose being your dad by being your boss, but I need sometimes just to be your boss. And it's interesting because it's been a double-edged coin, Micah. There are times where she'll call me and she'll say, hey, I need to talk to you about work, but I don't want to talk to you as my boss. I need to talk to you as my dad. I'll say, okay, I'll put on dad hat. <laughs> or she'll call and say, hey, uh, I need to talk to you as my boss for a minute. And I'll say, okay, I've got on boss hat. So it works both ways. And it's been the joy of my life. It sounds wonderful. And so, Mark, um, one, do you uh, reference scripture in trial? And then two, have there been occasions where even if you don't, uh, the person on the other side steps into it and perhaps miscites or uh, misrelies upon scripture and you're in a position to rebut? All right. Well, that's an interesting question, John, because... <clears throat> I do not often quote scripture at trial. I don't ever want to be seen as someone whose faith is driving their legal success in an improper way. And so I don't generally do that. I did in, I remember the first case I tried where I quoted scripture. Uh, um, I had a, a pastor, a Baptist pastor, who was going to be the, the four person on the jury, and I knew it. And I thought, you know, he's a Baptist pastor, small town, eight of the other jurors go to church at his church, whatever he decides is the way it's going to go. Um, uh, this is okay. Uh, I can quote scripture in this case. And so in closing argument, uh, I stood up and I said uh, to the jury, I said, have you all ever heard of uh, the idea of preaching to the choir? And they all kind of chuckled. I said, I feel like I'm preaching to the preacher, and they all kind of chuckled, and I looked at him, and I said, so the text for my sermon slash closing argument comes from the Old Testament book of Micah, the sixth chapter, the eighth verse, which is the one I was just talking about with Micah earlier. What does the Lord require of you to do justice? I said, that's the first thing out of his mouth, the prophet's mouth, and that's what you're here to do. You're here to do justice. So now the second thing the prophet says is to love mercy. And, and let's not get confused here. So these two defendants are 24 and 25 years old. And what they've done in this case is lie to you to try to get out of the responsibility for fixing the damage they did. And you saw the lies firsthand. 
Now, mercy is not letting them get away with lying. The greatest act of mercy you can do to them is teach them that you can't escape responsibility by telling lies. We try to teach that to our kids in second and third grade. Somehow they've made it into their early 20s and not learned that lesson. So you want to love mercy, you want to be merciful to them, help them figure this out before they live the rest of their life, that they need to be honest and straightforward. Now let's talk about justice in this case. And, and I launched. Well, the defense lawyer, this was before I had much of a reputation in, in the trial bar. And so I don't think he knew even remotely that I was a, a, a firm believer in, and much less that I translated the Micah passage out of Hebrew in college or things like that. And um, so he knew he had to get the Baptist preacher. And he just figured I was some rollicking, uh, drunk, skirt-chasing lawyer who had memorized one little passage of scripture to use in trial. And so he got up in his closing argument and he said to the, to the preacher and the jury, he said, were you as appalled as I was when Mr. Lanier quoted the Old Testament to you? We're not people of the Old Testament. Those are the Jews. We're people of the New Testament. I'm sitting there thinking, well, I'm a Christian, but I read the Old Testament too. That was Jesus's Bible. That was Paul's Bible. You, you know, already this guy's missing it theologically. But then he said, so I think Mr. Lanier got the wrong scripture. The right scripture in this case comes from the writings of the Apostle John. Now, I immediately in my brain think, John, what in the writings of John could he be talking about? And my brain did one of those flash through Evelyn Wood's speed reading drills where I went through the entire gospel of John and I couldn't figure out what he was going to use. I went to the, the epistles, the letters that are first, second, and third John. I, there's nothing in there that he could use. And then I went to Revelation. John wrote the Revelation. I thought, well, it calls Satan the accuser of the brethren in Revelation 10. Maybe he's going to say I'm like the devil because I accuse these boys of lying. I thought, no, there's no way he knows the scripture that well. I don't know what this guy's doing. So all of that flashes in my brain during the time it takes him to inhale and finish his sentence. So with that understood, here was his whole sentence going back and starting it at the beginning. Mr. Lanier quoted the wrong scripture. The right scripture scripture comes from the Apostle John, who wrote in the book we call 1 Corinthians, and I mean, he said no more than 1 Corinthians, and I jumped out of my seat. And I stood up and said, objection, your honor. Now, everybody looks over at me, and I said, the Apostle John did not write 1 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, and the judge leans back in his chair, and you can see him look up to the ceiling. Church going, man, the judge knew I was right. But you can see the judge sort of sitting there thinking, am I allowed to take judicial notice of this? Because it's not in evidence. And he decides he is, so he leans forward into the microphone and says, I'm going to have to sustain that objection. It, it was the Apostle Paul that wrote 1 Corinthians. And at that point in time, the preacher just lets out a derisive snort because he realizes not only are the two clients of the defense lawyer liars, but the lawyer himself can't tell the truth, and it pretends to be something he's not, namely uh, anybody who's read the Bible and in much depth and, and claims to know what they're talking about. So uh, uh, that, that was a delightful opportunity to use Scripture, but not one that I go to very often. I love that story and the enthusiasm <laughs> with which you tell it. Um, you have a uh, very authentic, very unique uh, storytelling ability. Where does that come from? Does that come from uh, your Bible study and your faith and teaching Sunday school? Does it come from somewhere else? Three sources. Number one, 
my mom told great stories growing up. So I sat at the foot of the master. We'd rather hear stories. Kids would come over for a slumber party and it wouldn't be, what do you want to do? Do you want to do this? And it was always, hey, can you get your mom to tell us stories? You know, a mom was a great storyteller. So I come from, a, um, uh, I, I come by it genetically as well as um, uh, environmentally from mom. Number two, we have four daughters and the two oldest ones, Gracie and Rachel, fought like cats and dogs. And for a period of about three or four years, I would drive them to school and it was a 30 minute commute. And I would pick them up from school and it was a 30 minute commute. And if I left them in the back seat for 30 minutes, they would kill each other and drive me crazy arguing and fighting, but they love a good story. So I would start each school year out with a story and I would, would build it up to a, a peak right as I'm pulling up to carpool line to let them out. And I'd say, oh, I'll have to finish it when I pick you up. Dad, now I'm sorry. And then when I pick them up, what happened? And I'd give them the peak and then I'd build the story back up to peak again right as we're pulling in the driveway and say, I'll have to finish it in the morning when I drive you to school. So I think years of trying to tell a captivating story to teach, keep two kids from fighting and killing each other was also part of it. And then maybe the third factor is I've tried to read a lot of books on storytelling. I've tried to read how to, to tell good stories and, and what goes into a good story, how to use your voice, how to use your language how to use uh, inflection, how to use words that are trigger words for people. Sometimes colors can be triggers. Smells, if you describe an odor, can be a trigger. Uh, uh, those types of things come also within books that tell you how to do it. So I'd say all three of those. Did you use any of these storytelling skills in the major motion picture that you appeared in playing yourself? <laughs> So, no, I didn't. Um, that movie was one where uh, I got asked by some, somebody one time, hey, we want to do a screenplay based on this case you have, uh, a movie. Uh, would you talk to our screenwriter? And I said, sure. You know, everybody's doing a movie. I, that didn't mean anything to me. So I met with this screenwriter, very nice young lady, and for a couple hours, and I told, told her what I could. Never heard anything else, never figured anything would happen of it. Then about a year or two later, I get a call from somebody. Hey, we're in final stages with this uh, movie script. It looks like, uh, you know, we're going to make this movie. Can we use your real name in the movie? And I said, my, my name? I said, well, send me the pages that, that deal with me. And uh, as long as it's consistent with my character of who I am as a person, I won't have any trouble with it. You know, I wanted to make sure I wasn't carousing in some ways or, or using language I wouldn't use or things like that because I, I, I care about that kind of stuff. And so, um, from, and so, so I, I get it. And those pages look fine. You know, now I'm not in the movie a ton, but there's like three or four or five scenes. And I'm, yeah, you can use my name. Doesn't bother me. I'm figuring, of course, the movie never gets made. So then fast forward. Or with another eight months to a year, um, uh, I get a phone call from, from somebody. My, my assistant comes in and Jan says to me, hey, Mark, there's some Hollywood producer, director, something on the phone who wants to talk to you about being in a movie. And I said, what? And I didn't even, I mean, it was far enough removed. I didn't even remember the script and all this stuff. So I get on the phone and said, this is Mark Lanier. How can I help you? Hey, we're making that movie about your case. I said, you are? Yeah, we're wondering. We've had about 20 people read for your part, but we've seen you on YouTube. We're not happy with any of them. We want you to play yourself in the movie. Would you be willing to do it? And I said, are you for real? And they said, yeah. I said, is this like a for real movie? And they said, yeah, we got Chris Evans, you know, Captain America starring in it and a number of other uh, uh, well-known character actors in it. And, and uh, we want you to play yourself. 
And I said, well, I guess A, if I can do it schedule wise and B, um, if I'm terrible, you have to promise you'll just cut me out of the movie and just leave me on the floor. Cause I don't want to be in some movie if, if I'm going to stink it up real bad. He said, oh no, no, no. If you're going to stink it up bad, we'll cut you. Don't worry. We don't want you to stink it up. So, so we worked the schedule out. Um, it turned out pretty cool uh, uh, in the sense that uh, the first scene they shot of me was me on the courthouse steps holding a press conference. And when they shoot a movie scene, first thing they do is block it. So they'll put tape where you stand, then you move to this other tape on the ground. The, the filming doesn't pick up the tape. They, they just, you know, they, they get the lighting is set and the camera set so that it tracks with you as you do this movement. So I'm, I'm pretty stoked about it. And, and I'm up there. And, and after they blocked me out, they're blocking out Chris Evans over about 30 feet to my left. And uh, uh, one of the extras of the film crew, uh, uh, his, uh, a Hispanic fella comes up to me. And he says, with a really thick uh, Spanish accent, he says, uh, hey, you're Mark Lanier, aren't you? And I said, I am. It's good to meet you. What's your name? And he says, no, no, no. I don't mean like uh, in the movie. I mean in real life. You really are Mark Lanier, aren't you? And I said, uh, yes, I'm, I'm Mark Lanier in real life and in the movie. Uh, who are you? Uh, my name is Juan Rodriguez. He says, I read for your part. So did my buddy over there. He's an extra too. I looked at my buddy just now. I said, hey, no wonder we didn't get the part. They found someone who looks just like Mark Lanier. And then I thought, hey, maybe it is Mark Lanier. So I had to come up and find out. So, you know, the, the, the neat dynamic for me is I was just really close to being a short Hispanic fella in the movie, which might have actually played better. I don't know. But uh, uh, I did get to play myself. I don't have enough lines to have told many stories, but I had a heck of a good time doing the movie. It was really fun. And, and so, you know, we're kind of getting to the end uh, here, Mark. And so um, have you made any changes? Or are you doing anything different during this time of COVID? Um, and uh, are there some changes that you think you're going to carry forward in terms of things you do or the way you, you, you work or anything like that? So it's been interesting. I've become a Zoom lawyer, um, uh, Skype for business. Um, we, we do that. I've, we've done the hearings that way. We've done countless meetings that way. I think it's uh, going to be something that's more quickly um, done in the future. Um, by the same token, I think that we're going to find a restoration to a normalcy that a lot of people are not anticipating. Um, one of the big differences I've made is for my law firm each week on Monday, I do a message for the law firm. We've got 170 five people working from home in essence. And so I do a message for them each Monday uh, for my class and, and for others generally on the internet. Um, I do a, a video devotional thought for the day each morning. And so it's generally around three to four minutes. And I do those Monday through Friday. And I've had a lot of people, we, we'll, we'll have, you know, thousand plus views a day. And, and I've had a lot of people who've said, would you please continue those when this is over? And I don't know that, that I'm up to doing a four to minute, five minute clip each morning, um, but uh, maybe I will, or maybe I'll do them three days a week. I don't know. Uh, I'll probably carry that forward um, and, and continue to do that. I do live stream right now my class at church because we can't meet. And, and that's been real interesting. So when I teach at church, my, my attendance is generally around 650 to 700 people each Sunday. But uh, when we do it now live streaming from the internet, and I do it live, um, I'm having several thousand views. And so it's, it's uh, 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 folks from all over the globe are, are tuned in and watching and emailing. And that's kind of cool. And anybody who wants to watch, uh, go to the easiest way to do it. You can do it off YouTube. But the easiest way is to go to our Facebook page, Biblical-Literacy. The Biblical Literacy Facebook page has got the click, one click, live stream. You can do it from our class website. You can do it from YouTube, other places. But I, I may, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to do with all of that kind of stuff. But, but uh, you know, this is this has been working. We've mediated cases via Zoom. It's working great. 
Well, gentlemen, time is the great enemy. And unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap for today. It's been an absolute pleasure, Mark, to have you as our guest. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you to my co-host and friend, John Gomez. You've been listening to a special edition of Just Us for Justice. This is CAOC President Micah Star liberty saying thank you. And today, as a special treat, you are going to listen to a Beatles cover song with lyrics written by our guest, Mark Lanier, and performed by his dear friend, Phil Keggy. Just Us for Justice podcast is brought to you by the Consumer Attorneys of California. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on iTunes. Music was provided by www.bensound.com. Questions or comments? Email us at justuspodcast at caoc.org.